Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokor in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Sokor and Azekar. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing, this, the, on hearing the Philistine wor- Philistines' words, words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. The next few verses describe how David left his father and joined the Israelite army in their standoff against Goliath. And we pick up the story at verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he's been fighting. he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God." The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. 
David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along Sha'arim Road to Gath and Ekron. Over the summer, we've been looking at a number of famous stories from the Bible, which are often classics found in Sunday schools around the country. Children know them well, but we've been seeing over the summer that these children's stories are not just for children, but they have a relevance to all of us, young and old. And that is certainly the case this morning as we come to David and Goliath. And as we turn to God's word, let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed our strength and refuge, our present help in trouble. We do live in a fearful world, whether it's struggles and evil from outside or struggles and hardships from within. We come to you now as people very aware of how vulnerable we are in this world. And we thank you that in Christ we have a solid rock for our feet. Please help us to understand and rejoice In that rock today we pray. Amen. On Thursday afternoon I was driving back from a meeting. I flicked on the radio and within seconds I knew it had happened again. A different city but the same 
terror, the same evil, the same destruction. People out on a Sunday afternoon enjoying uh, walking down a street in Barcelona when within seconds, uh, 13 people uh, killed, many dozens injured as a van careered down the street. As one newspaper put it, evil strikes again. Sadly, Barcelona is not the only time we've seen evil at work in our world this year. Um, we've seen it again and again, haven't we, in this country, around Europe, in the world, and even this week, not just in terrorism, but think of the events in Virginia with the white supremacists marching, racial hatred clearly at work, very evil. You might have seen headlines from Newcastle as another gang of men convicted of grooming offences We know the world is full of niggles and struggles and uh, we experience little things like that along the way we we struggle and we we kind of, life isn't always easy. We know that and often any given day we find ways to cope and we move on but when it comes to these big global things, we see the terror and the evil in the world or when we face real crises in our own hearts, we realize that these aren't just niggles and frustrations, things that we can cope with, these are too big for us. They're too ingrained in our world. Uh, Problems just don't go away. They keep happening again and again. Evil emerges again and again in the world. And again and again, we find ourselves overwhelmed by what this world is like, personally, nationally, globally. And I imagine as we've come face to face again with evil in this world, we are bound to, well, feel overwhelmed We are bound to wonder if things will ever get better, if there's any hope. This morning, we have before us one of the most famous stories in the Bible. I would guess that many of our children who are now across the way could give us a good summary of the shepherd boy who, in most unlikely circumstances, killed the giant Goliath and rescued God's people. It's a brilliant story. But this ancient story is actually a dress rehearsal for an even more brilliant and wonderful moment in history. For this encounter with David and Goliath, it points us forward to the moment when Jesus took on and defeated evil once and for all. And so this ancient story is going to help us to see why trusting in Jesus now gives us great hope and confidence, even in a world like the world we've seen this week. So as we dive into the story, if you're taking notes, here's our first heading. First, we see an unbeatable enemy. The first few verses that Ian read for us set the scene that the Philistines are at it again. They are one of the great enemies of the people of God. They are back in the land of Judah and they have come to wreak havoc. The battle lines are drawn. On one side of the valley, you have the Philistines and across the valley, you have the people of God, the Israelites, encamped across from the Philistines. Nothing new so far, but then verse four a champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out from the Philistines. When I was playing rugby at school, there's always that moment when the other team would run out onto the pitch and is your chance to size up the opposition to work out what kind of game it was going to be. And I remember one particular cup game when uh, before the match, there were rumors going around that the other team had a German exchange student who just happened to be the shot put champion for Germany of his age at school. And um, apparently he was called Hercules, his nickname. (laughs) 
Well, I wasn't sure if the rumors were true or not, but as his team ran out on the pitch, I saw an enormous boy, not a boy at all, a man running onto the pitch. He was huge, muscles, neck bulging, and I knew Hercules had arrived. And then to my shock and horror, I realized that the number on my back was the same number as was on his back, and it was the longest game of my life. I guess verse four is a similar moment as Goliath steps out onto the pitch of battle, but it's no laughing matter, is it? Because he's not just large, he is a giant. Verse four, he is over nine feet tall. And then we look, we look at the armor, his huge helmet and his, his, um, the scales of his armor. Um, they weighed um, what, 125 pounds or 57 kilos. It's like having a small person strapped onto your back and his spearhead weighed the size of a, of a big bowling ball. And this man struts out a giant onto the pitch of battle. And unlike Hercules, he had come not to knock me around for a few moments. No, verse nine, he had come out to enslave the people of God and to kill the one opposed to him. And so the, the, the entire threat of the Philistine army is now focused and represented by this one great giant, Goliath, who has come to enslave and to destroy. And as a writer describes this moment in history, he wants us to see that Goliath is an unbeatable enemy. Look at the reaction of the Israelites, verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Why? Because they knew no one stood a chance against Goliath. And so, verse 16, we are told that Goliath's fearful challenge went unanswered day after day after day for 40 days. Instead of fighting, verse 24, when the Israelites saw the man, Goliath, they all ran from him in great fear. When David arrives and tells King Saul his plan to go and attack Goliath, well, verse 33, Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. Now, this is so important. Goliath is not just scary. He's not just a challenge. He's not just a threat. He is more than that. He is unbeatable, humanly speaking, And this is so important for us because 1 Samuel 17 is a dress rehearsal for an even bigger encounter. Goliath, as the great enemy of God's people, represents in this story an even greater enemy that we find again and again in the Bible, the one who always stands opposed to God's people and who wields an even greater threat to the people of God. I am talking about the devil, Satan, who comes to Uh, enslave and to destroy the people of God. And throughout the Bible, it's very clear the devil is real and active and he is at work to sponsor and encourage human hearts in this world towards evil. And the plight of the people in 1 Samuel 17 is an insight into the plight of the people of God in general in the face of the devil at work. There may be some here this morning who struggled to believe that there is such a thing as the devil, a personal evil force opposed to God. You might think that's sort of the stuff of fiction and fairy tales. But let me put it this way. As we look again and again at the news headlines, and as we see yet again through 
week after week after week, the terrible events unfolding in our world, can we explain these events simply in terms of the human heart and human decisions? Does it not make more sense to think that there is behind this terrible acts of evil an evil force, an influence who is sponsoring and encouraging such terrible things? The Bible is very clear. There is one like that, the devil himself. And he loves to enslave people, not with iron handcuffs like Goliath and the Philistines, but with our sin. He whispers in our ear the lie that we'd be better off ignoring God and living life our own way. He offers us pleasure and satisfaction as he dangles sin before us. Just a bit of lust, that juicy bit of gossip, that um, indulgence in self-pity, the temper that flies off the handle. He makes it look so good, so right, and he enslaves us with it. And he loves to destroy people. Back in the garden in Genesis 3, as the devil encouraged Adam and Eve to sin, he was encouraging them towards their own death. And so too today, as he stirs up sin and rebellion against God, he does so to destroy people. Like Goliath, he has come to kill. What does this ancient story mean for us today? It means that we are in a fight against an enemy that we ourselves cannot beat. So many people try to deal with their own sin and their own strength. We love to be the hero of our story, to think that on our own we can fix the problems facing our own lives and the world around us with our willpower and our personal strength, the New Year's resolutions, our clever insights into how people work and our our insights into how the world should be done differently. We think we can fix things on our own, in our own hearts and the world around us. But we have an unbeatable enemy. What about death itself? So many people try to evade or ignore death by not thinking about it, by eating organic food or joining the gym or going to bed earlier. But just like an Israelite waking up one morning and pulling the curtains back from their house, looking out and seeing this huge army of the Philistines outside your window, so one day death will encroach on each one of us. We cannot stop it. It will come. It is an enemy we cannot beat. Think of the 400 or so, perhaps more, who were killed in a second in Freetown as a mudslide tumbled down a mountain. Think of the 12 people killed by the tree in Madeira, during a a Catholic festival, death can come in a second. We cannot stop it. And 1 Samuel 17 shows us that we have an unstoppable enemy. Thankfully, the story doesn't stop there. Our second point is this. Uh, There might be an unstoppable enemy, but, but next we have an unstoppable savior. In the Hollywood films, when things look just about impossible, that's when the hero comes rushing forward. And normally the hero is a, a sort of James Bond kind of character or an Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime sort of figure, muscles rippling under the T-shirt. And actually in 1 Samuel 17, there is just such a figure who should be out rescuing the people of God. I'm talking about Saul, the king of Israel. You see, in those days, the king was meant to be the first one into battle who led the people against the enemy. And we know Saul was well suited to fighting. If you know the context in 1 Samuel, we are told back in chapter 9 that he stood a head taller than any other 
man, if he were here today and look around, we'd see Saul standing out because he's massive. And uh, we know that he's good at fighting because earlier on in 1 Samuel, he does win some significant victories against the enemies of God's people. Saul should have been the hero who rescues the people. And I think Saul exemplifies the kind of leader the world thinks we need to deal with the problems that we face in the world. A big, strong, impressive leader who will come into battle for us and fix things. But here in 1 Samuel 17, the people's king quivers with fear and refuses to fight. And as we see Saul's inability to to defeat Goliath, I think we see the inability of any human king or leader or politician to fix the problems that we face in this world. No amount of extra policing will prevent further terrorism happening. No amount of extra social work will stop things like the sexual offences happening up in Newcastle that we've seen. But of course, in 1 Samuel 17, there is an unstoppable saviour. It's not Saul, it's the shepherd boy. Humanly speaking, this shepherd boy, David, is, verse 14, a nobody. He's the youngest in the family. Verse 15, he's an errand boy going back and forth between the family home and the front line carrying grain and cheese. And when he does arrive with some home comforts, his older brother mocks him. We didn't read this bit, but look at verse 28. His older brother says to him, to David, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. You see, humanly speaking, David is a nobody. And when Saul tries to dress David up in his armor, verse 39, it's no use because David has no experience of warfare with such things as armor and it just won't work. And as David heads out to fight the mighty giant Goliath, he's carrying his staff in one hand and he's so small compared to Goliath that Goliath sort of peers down and he says, are you coming with a stick as if you're fetching, uh, throwing a stick for a dog? You know, David's staff is so small, it's like a little stick to Goliath. David is a nobody in the eyes of the world. All he has is his sling and a five smooth stones. There's been much ink spilt over these five smooth stones that David picks up from the stream. Maybe they are special stones. Maybe they represent the five books of the law or five um, prophets who speak on God's behalf or, or the promises of God. As far as I can tell, they are just five stones. The point is that this most unlikely shepherd boy heads out against Goliath with the most unlikely weapons. He hasn't got a chance, we think, And yet he is able to do something that no one else could do. With a single stone, he strikes the great enemy and kills Goliath. And we're bound to ask the question, why was David victorious when others could not be? And the simple answer to that is because the Lord was with David. The Lord had chosen Saul to be king back in 1 Samuel 15. Sorry, earlier on, but back in 1 Samuel 15, we were told that Saul rejected the word of the Lord, and so the Lord rejected Saul. The Lord was no longer with Saul as king. And even though Saul was still acting as king, he was no longer the Lord's anointed one, unable to save the people. But David, on the other hand, 
was God's king elect. Back in chapter 16, he was anointed as the next king of Israel. And when he was anointed, we are told the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. As David describes how in his boyhood, the Lord protected him from the threats of wild animals, we're told that the Lord delivered him from the paw, the bear. And indeed, when he comes to confront Goliath, he's very clear that he does so in the Lord's strength. Verse 47, David said, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. David is the unstoppable savior because the Lord is with him in great power. This story is so often used to encourage us to be a bit more like David in our own lives. You know, we might have our own personal Goliaths that we have to face from time to time, or as we look around the world and we, we are overwhelmed by the threat, we need to be a bit more courageous, a bit more relying on the Lord's strength to head out into battle. And if we do that, the Lord will give us the victory like David's. It's meant to sound empowering. You know, we can do it. Come on, let's go for it. But actually, when you think about it, it's just plain scary because we are being sent out to fight an unstoppable enemy. And it's down to us with that view to win. And I don't think that's the point of all, at all of this story. As the Christian author Tim Chester put it, the message of 1 Samuel 17 is not that we are called to be like David It's good news is that we have a David. Remember the words of the angel spoken to the shepherds many centuries later in Luke chapter two. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Christ. And so this ancient story of the shepherd boy, David, points us forward to our greater savior, Jesus Christ, the son of David, who comes into the world to win a greater victory than David ever won over evil. According to the worldly wisdom, Jesus was hardly an awesome king. Like David, his brothers mocked him. Like David, he headed out to fight the great enemy in what looked like a position of of utter weakness. But on the cross, as Jesus died, as the world watched and mocked his weakness, he was in fact defeating the great enemy. I love the words in Colossians chapter two, verse 15. Paul writes, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Our great enemy, the devil, has been defeated by our great savior, Jesus Christ. This is such good news. Our battle against our enemy has already been won. We have had to do nothing but, like the people, to watch on as the battle is won for us. Because of the cross, we are no longer condemned for our sin. We are no longer left enslaved to our sin like we were before. We no longer fear what will happen to us in the future for our sins have been washed away. As we look at the news headlines and see a world that looks to be out of control and evil running amok in the world, we know that evil will not win for it has been defeated at the cross. And when death enters our lives and our worlds and we 
realize that we cannot defeat the great and final enemy of death, because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we know that death is not the end. And whilst death is still fearful, we should never be glib about death. We do not face death like those who have no hope, for Christ has been raised, death has been defeated, and we will be with him in the new creation. Our unstoppable Savior has won a great victory for us against our unbeatable enemy. But before we finish, there'll be some here today who say, well, this is wonderful news. And it is wonderful news. But as we look around at our lives this week at the world today, it doesn't look as if the great enemy has been beaten. It looks like he's alive and well, and it looks like the world's out of control. And so before we finish, here's our final point. We've had an unstoppable enemy, an unstoppable savior, and finally, an undeniable victory. Our story begins with the people of Israel on one side of the valley cowering in fear. They, they won't move forward because they're petrified of the threat. But at the end of our story, look at, over the page at verse 51. Once they realize that Goliath has been killed, actually verse 52, then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath. I love the transformation from a people cowering in fear to a people surging forward to bring home the victory because the great enemy has been defeated. I think this picture of the people of God surging forward after the, the, the giant's been slain is a, is a picture of the kind of courage we should have today because of the great victory we have had won for us at the cross. Um, our enemy has been defeated, but there is still evil in the world. Yes, we still struggle with sin. Death is still terrible, but we should be people full of hope and courage. We should uh, surge into the world, not with a sword to pursue enemies, but with the wonderful gospel message of a risen and conquering Lord. In fact, we should be even more bold than the Israelites in 1 Samuel 17, because Although David won this victory on that day, we know the Philistines, they come back later on in the history of Israel. This battle isn't the final battle for them, but in Christ, we know that he has won an eternal victory. The enemy will never come back. And so we should have even more confidence, even more boldness to surge out into the world proclaiming the news of a risen and conquering king. Of course, the transformation works both ways. Just as God's people move from fear to confidence, so God's enemies move from arrogant opposition to desperate retreat. There's Goliath strutting around, mocking the people of God. Where is your God? Come out and defy me and my God. And no one can. By the end of the story, the Philistines are in retreat. And I think it's also a picture of the great transformation that is coming. You see, there are many in the world today who mock King Jesus and who think they will get away with it. They jeer the people of God because they look around and look, all they can see is weakness when they look at the church. Maybe there are even some here today who have made a habit throughout our lives of thinking little of King Jesus. There is a warning here. A, a transformation is coming when the undeniable victory of King Jesus is seen in all its glory. 
There is still time now to turn and to follow him before it's too late. There is great comfort here for the people of God. We live in the now and not yet of the victory of Christ. The victory has been won, the devil has been defeated, but the fighting goes on. The true king is yet to be universally acknowledged. And so this week as we go out to chat to our neighbors or go back to the office to work amongst the world and our colleagues, there are many people who go on denying Jesus, mocking Jesus, thinking he doesn't exist, thinking little of him. This 1 Samuel 17 gives us great confidence, great courage to go on speaking about Christ even then. It is easy to feel overwhelmed by the world, by the relentless evil. Uh, we've seen terrible things this week and I fear we'll go on seeing more terrible headlines in the weeks and months to come. We live in that kind of world. And of course, we can be overwhelmed by our own sin and our own circumstances. And so 1 Samuel 17 gives us courage. This week, may we be a people who rejoice in our great champion, the Lord Jesus. As the Apostle Paul put it, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are our strength and our refuge. We thank you for the solid rock that is Christ that we can stand upon. We thank you that in the midst of a world so full of evil and fear and death, we thank you that in Christ we have an unstoppable savior who has won for us an undeniable victory. Father, we thank you that there'll be a day in the future when Christ will return in all his glory and the world sees him for who he really is and on that day every knee will bow and on that day the battle will be over there will be peace and safety and our own personal battle with sin will be over as well. Father we thank you for that day that will come. Please help us to have confidence help us to head out into a new week speaking and thinking much of our champion, Jesus Christ. Amen.